This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay, and today I have on a returning guest. I believe this is his third time on the podcast, Carl McColeman. Welcome back, Carl. Oh, it's good to be back, Lisa. <laughs> the last time you were on, you had your book, Unteachable Lessons, that we were going over. And for people who haven't heard of you yet or maybe new to the program, I'll just read this inside flap that gives all of the info on you. It says, Carl McCullman is a contemplative writer, storyteller, podcaster, and spiritual director. He is a life-professed member of a lay Cistercian community under the spiritual guidance of Trappist monks. He is the author of numerous books, including The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, and regularly speaks and leads retreats on topics related to Christian mysticism, Celtic spirituality, and interfaith dialogue. Carl and his wife, artist Fran McColeman, live near Atlanta, Georgia. And you can find him at anacarum.com, at Carl McColeman, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. That's the low down there. <laughs> so it was a joy to read this book and endorse it. It's really lovely, has so many golden nuggets. The latest book we're going to be talking about that Carl has written is called Eternal Heart, The Mystic Path to a Joyful Life. And if I could just read, uh, to give everybody a little taste, reading the chapters here, chapter titles, and then I want to dig into one of them. So the chapter titles are the beginning is called infinity, then passage, silence, discernment, renewal, wisdom, love, eternity, joy. Tell us how this book came together. Yeah, let, let me tell the story of the book and then maybe um, the, the fact that it's kind of vague will, will make more sense. Um, the, the book really emerged out of an encounter I had with one verse out of the Jewish scriptures. And this was probably five or more years ago. I can't remember when mm -hmm. I first really noticed this verse and it really kind of wowed me. Mm. But the verse was is from the book of Ecclesiastes and it's Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. And it's one of those verses that gets translated fairly significantly different ways in different English translation. So I'm going to give you the Hebrew word as well as some of the ways it gets translated. The translation that I use, which if, if I remember correctly, is the New Revised Standard Version, basically says that, that God has made everything beautiful in its time and has placed eternity in your heart. Yeah, let me repeat that. God has made everything beautiful in its time and has placed eternity in your heart. Now, the Hebrew word that gets translated there as eternity is olam. And, you know, I, I imagine many people who listen to this podcast may be familiar with the Jewish phrase tikkun olam, which literally means to repair the world. Tikkun olam is actually kind of, kind of the, the mandate to live justly the mandate to live in a manner that fosters healing and reconciliation and justice rather than living in such a manner that militates against those things. 
repairing the world. That's part of our vocation as people of faith, as people in relationship with, with the mystery we call God. So this word olam can be translated as cosmos or as world. But I think the general consensus is that in this particular verse, Ecclesiastes 3.11, if olam refers to the time-space continuum, it's really speaking more to kind of the time end of the continuum, as mm. it were. So you'll also see that verse translated as God has placed timelessness in our heart. God has placed past and future in our heart. So you find some kind of linear ways of thinking about this. But I think, you know, the word eternity or the eternal really comes the closest to capturing this richness of the concept of olam, that, that the divine mystery has poured into our hearts an eternality, a, a cosmic dimension that is our birthright. It is simply a gift that has been given to us. So as you can imagine, as I'm reflecting on this verse and reflecting on what it means, I, I, I'm really being invited into a very kind of rich place of spiritual understanding. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it inspires me to, um, to begin to look at other ways. And again, I come out of the Christian tradition. Um, and so, you know, so Christianity is my home faith. So the Bible, the Jewish scriptures, and the Christian New Testament is is the sacred text of my tradition. And I have a complex relationship with the Bible, and we could certainly go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, warts and all, the Bible is still my sacred text. So I, um, I just became curious. Okay, this is a really profound statement, a really profound kind of truth claim that mm -hmm. eternity is in our hearts. What else uh, does the scriptures say about the heart? And by the time I wrote the book, so again, over a several year period, mm -hmm. I had identified eight different gifts that are given to us in our hearts. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, you look at the cover of the book and you see mm -hmm. that figure eight on it. And of course, it's kind of a visual pun. I talk about this at the beginning of the book, because if you turn the book sideways, it becomes the infinity symbol, which of course evokes that sense of eternality. So, so God has placed e eternity in our hearts, but eternity is just one of at least eight gifts. And I, and I will say in full disclosure that since the book went to press, I've discovered at least one, maybe two other gifts in scripture. Oh. So, so I'm going to have to write maybe son of eternity, eternal heart or eternal heart, the next generation or something like that. <laughs> if, if I, if I can come up with eight more gifts, I've still got six or seven to go, but, um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask you the next thing I was going to ask you about. Tell us about the thing that looks like the eight. And um, I think that I would love to, for you to a little bit draw a kind of explanation on when you say heart, can you describe what you mean? Because in our times, we think of heart as, you know, Valentine's Day and mm -hmm. passion and, you know, um, and those types of things. But is there a difference in what you're getting at with the heart that is described in the Bible? 
Well, I think, you know, obviously one of the ways, one of the, the responsible ways to read a text like the Bible is to try to understand what the authors themselves may have meant. Mm -hmm. And so I certainly cannot claim to be a Hebrew scholar or a scholar, <clears throat> excuse me, a scholar of ancient Jewish history or culture. But with my layperson's knowledge, I do have the sense that 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 for the um, you know, for the the ancient uh, Jewish and Hebrew writers, the heart was more than just the pump, the blood pump, mm -hmm. um, and it was um, more than just you know Valentine's Day, than just kind of Cupid, Cupid and chocolate. That you know that the heart would have been the seat, really, kind of the seat of our embodied identity. Mm. So so the heart would be kind of what we might think of as the heart-mind system. And so right away, here's another thing that I think is beautiful about that figure eight, because when I look at that figure eight, I see the upper part of the eight as representing the mind and the lower part of the eight as representing the heart. So it's almost like the figure eight is imposed yeah. over the human body and, and there becomes this dynamic of, of discourse of cognitive discourse, but then also of profound intuition, of feeling, of knowing, of embodied knowing, which, and, and as I make clear in the book, that emerges out of silence. What you're saying about the feeling mind, as it were, that is really what we're talking about when we think of somatic aspects to the body, right? It's, it's part intuition, but it's also what we feel if we get scared, we feel something in our bodies, and that's really like that feeling mind. Yes, yes. Well, and and you need, you know, you need the heart mind dynamic mm. because you know the autonomic nervous response. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're scared, you're excited. Physiologically, they're identical. You know, your heart's racing, you're sweating. Mm -hmm. You know, you you got that kind of the butterflies in the belly, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and I think um, the, um, you know, so the challenge is not only I'm responding to this stimuli, but what is the story that I'm telling myself about the stimuli? You know, I'm getting close to somebody that I'm romantically involved in. Well, that's probably an example when you're both excited and scared. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, but that's different than, you know, suddenly there's this you know, hungry gorilla coming at you or whatever, you know, or, or a person with a gun or whatever the situation might be. So, um, you know, so, so the heart and the mind need each other. Without the heart, the mind just becomes a computer. It's just linear data, you know, without, without the mind, the heart is, is basically a headless body. So a body that has response, but doesn't have a way to contextualize the response interpret the response or discern and make choices in response to the response. So, so, you know, so we need both and we need a way to, to integrate both. And of course we live in a culture that has for so long privileged the mind over the heart. You know, th think about our, I, I talk about this in my last book and unteachable lessons Our archetypal figures, Sheldon from the big bang theory or Mr. Spock or data, the Android, you know, we, 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 um, um, 
the um, when I was a kid, there was what um, Tom Swift and Brains Benton and you know Danny Dunn, you know these these children's you know I don't know that any kids nowadays would even know any of that stuff, but when I was a kid, you know, um, but they were all these kind of archetypal brainy figures. Mm-hmm. A Sherlock Holmes is yeah. another example, right, right. you know, and um, and so we we you know and it's and it's very much embedded in our our idea, our cultural idea of masculinity. I, obviously, that's changing, mm-hmm. but. But it's still it's still the, this heritage that we have, mm-hmm. and it and it still impacts so many of the ways that we maybe you know have a default way of thinking about mm-hmm. things. So um, you know, so this you know, the mind is masculine; it's better than the feminine heart or the feminine body, and 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 obviously that needs to be de- deconstructed. That's 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 a system of privilege that's unjust, but it's what we've inherited, you mm-hmm. know, and right. so so we, we've got to work on that. That plays into what you've done at the end of each chapter. You have a heart practice, and maybe you can just describe what you're trying to accomplish there. It seems like a spiritual formation uh, route, which, of course, is my passion, my first love there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for putting those in. Well, um, you're welcome. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that this book is a devotional book. It's a spiritual book. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think probably anybody, you know, with, with a college level knowledge of psychology is not going to learn anything new in this book, you know, but, um, but the book is an invitation to, um, you know, to reflect again, reflect on this kind of spiritual story we have that God, and, and again, I define God as love with a capital L. That the love that emerges at the heart of the universe has poured gifts into our heart. And those gifts empower us to live a joyful life. And so that's essentially the promise of the book. So, but it's an invitation, it's an inductive invitation to really kind of make that, you know, a retreat experience. I mean, even if, you know, to use kind of the Jesuit language, a retreat in everyday life, you know, you may be reading this book on the beach. Um, <laughs> which I think would be a great place to read the book, but, um, you know, but why not take time to, to touch silence, take time to touch prayer, take time to touch Lexio Divina, take time to reflect on the roles of generosity and hospitality in your life. You know, because as, as I know, you know, Lisa, and I imagine many people listening to this conversation are aware, spirituality can never be just a private thing. Spirituality must be relational. There must be a, an element of how how is my relationship with God impacting the way I relate to other human beings? Whether that means the the intimate people in my life, my family, my friends, my neighborhood, or in the larger sense, my commitment to justice, my commitment to peace, my commitment to, to making this world a better place. Mm. All of that is in the mix. And so these, these exercises, they're very simple, like you say, very broad, general mm-hmm. exercises. Mm-hmm. But the invitation is that by touching on each of these, we are nurturing our heart gifts, mm. nurturing them and hopefully um, activating them and, and just being more present to the blessings that we carry in our own bodies mm-hmm. that are available to us to make a difference in the world. Mm, that's beautifully said. I wanted to drill down deeper into one of the chapters. There's so many good things. I had to be very picky about it. And I decided to go with chapter five and the wisdom chapter that begins on page 95. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I wanted to call out to have you elucidate for us is the part that says on page 100, wisdom and patience are spiritually bonded. In developing one, you foster the other and vice versa. Just like you learn to work out 
certain groups of muscles in tandem. It makes sense that certain spiritual gifts naturally develop together. Generosity and trust go together. So do patience and wisdom. So do joy and love. And it would be great if you could explain some of this tandemness and also why patience is connected to wisdom. To, to answer you, let me just begin by maybe telling the story behind this paragraph. I am, you know, I'm in midlife. I just turned 60 a few months ago. And, and I'm going to brag on myself for a second. I am in better physical shape than mm. I have ever been my mm. entire life. But in a way, that's not saying much <laughs> because I was, I was always out of shape. I was mm. always overweight. I was never athletic, always picked last for kickball, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I, I only, and I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I only um, really entered into kind of a journey of intentional self-care you know, going to the gym, working with a personal trainer, uh, you know, being mindful of my what I'm eating. In the last five years or so, when my mm -hmm. when my daughter passed away, uh, so I tell that story mm -hmm. in my book, Unteachable Lessons, but I do mm -hmm. mention my daughter in this book. But she passed away in 2014, and I was overweight when she died, but I gained uh, 25 pounds mm -hmm. in the 18 months after she died. Mm -hmm. So I am five foot ten. I have a medium frame. Uh, I was 210 pounds. I was 50 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, people started saying to me, eh, you, you might want to go to the gym, you know. And so I and I did. I, I, I joined a gym. I worked with a personal trainer. I began to lose weight. I'm, I'm just very excited to say that today I, I weigh a around 164 pounds. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm my my weight is where it needs to be. I can do 60 push-ups, you know, one, one, one for each year, uh, you know, that I'm alive, <laughs> nice. uh, which means next year I have to go up to 61, um, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I, I, I don't do a lot of running. I don't lift weights. I mean, I, I work with, you know, with, with uh, dumbbells at home, but nothing heavy, you know, mm -hmm. 10, 10 pound, 20 pound dumbbells. So I'm, you know, again, I'm not a jock or anything like that, but, but it's been, I, I'm late to the game of intentionally taking good care of my mm -hmm. body. And, and I'm, you know, there's a part of me that laments that I didn't figure this out 40 years ago. And there's just a bigger part of me that's just grateful that I'm doing this now, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, but so, you know, so it's like discovering, you know, it was news to me that when you work out, you work out muscle groups. I mm -hmm. never knew that. <laughs> And I was like, oh, who knew? You know, so so this this paragraph really is is expressing kind of my delight mm -hmm. in midlife learning more about my body and mm -hmm. and the miracle of of this you know this gift that God has given us and um and so I think it was just this insight that I had that you know again in the spiritual life we talk a lot about the virtues we talk a lot about the fruits of the spirit mm -hmm. you know these these qualities that being a person of faith being a spiritually mature person we cultivate you know it, mm -hmm. it's you want to be a more loving person a more compassionate person a kinder person a more forgiving person a more patient person you know the fruit of the spirit which i talk a lot about in the book because i think they all tie in with, mm -hmm. you know, the book is structured around the Beatitudes also, but, but the fruit of the spirit kind of make little surprise appearances here and there. <laughs> but, um, but the, um, you know, but this idea that 
can we cultivate the fruit in tandem like we like we build up our muscles in tandem mm-hmm. and 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 when i had kind of that gee i wonder if kind of moment then you know and and i mentioned the ones that just kind of intuitively struck me mm-hmm. oh yeah you know if you well, generosity and trust, which again, I talk about in Unteachable Lessons, I learned that from Julian of Norwich, because Julian mm. of Norwich, the medieval mystic, really emphasizes that generosity and trust go together. Mm. So, you know, so that was, that, that, you know, that's a kiss to her. But, um, and joy and love, which again, I talk more about in, in the, later in the book, but, the, you know, but they are, they are paired together in the fruit of the spirit. You know, the first three fruit of the spirit are love, joy, and peace. Mm-hmm. And and this idea that, you know, that to be to be in to be in a loving relationship, a healthy loving relationship, there's always going to be a measure of joy. Mm-hmm. And I say that having been a long-term caregiver, having had a child die, you know, having having had you know loved ones go through seasons of depression and mental illness and you know so i'm not i'm not innocent when it comes to suffering Mm -hmm. but i know from my own experience that even in a relationship that is deeply troubled Mm -hmm. when love is present it is always possible for joy to be present too Mm -hmm. and so um, in fact i would argue that if you want to cultivate one work on cultivating both. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so if you want to be a more joyful person, work on being a more loving person and vice Mm -hmm. versa. So, so that's really where, you know, where this is, is leading us. So back to kind of the theme of the chapter, what does it mean to be a wise person? Again, I think if you want to cultivate wisdom, work on your patience. Mm. And I say that as somebody who is chronically impatient, <laughs> you know, which again, I touch on in the book when I mm-hmm. talk about traveling with my daughter and how it took us you know, 10 times as long to do things. Mm-hmm. But, it was, but it was a gift to me because it taught me that, you know, impatience is not the only way to navigate the world, mm. you know. Mm. And so the, learning that lesson was uh, maybe just a little bit of wisdom given to me. And again, you know, part of the, the message behind the book is that wisdom is one of the eight gifts. Mm-hmm. So I believe we all have wisdom in our heart, but I also believe that wisdom is a gift that we have to cultivate. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the gifts are, um, are, you know, I live in the South. Some of the gifts are like kudzu. They grow really, really fast. Other, other of the gifts are like redwood trees. Mm. It takes a long time for them to develop. They're both gifts. They're both, they're both living things planted in our heart. But the way we cultivate them v- varies from gift to gift. Yeah, right. It does seem like wisdom is sometimes really hard fought. Like you learn it through some kind of brutal experience or some sort of suffering. Not maybe all the time, but the maybe the deepest lessons of wisdom are the ones that involve patience. But but not just patience, like an endurance and forbearance and all those other things that go along with patience. Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true. And, um, you know, maybe I zeroed in on patience because that's the one I struggle with. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I think all of those that you mentioned, you know, really all of the virtues, you know, can contribute to what it means to have a wise heart. Mm-hmm. I define wisdom in the book as, as knowledge paired with love, mm. you know. And again, it's back to that, that, that mind-heart you know, kind of yeah. infinity loop yeah. that, um, you know, that, that you can, you can amass all the knowledge in the world, but you won't be wise yeah. if, you don't, if you don't know how to express it lovingly. You know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Wisdom has to come 
not apart at all from relationships. So it's, you cannot be a wise person and be bad with people, mm -hmm. uh, it seems. Uh, yeah, there's just so many nuggets in here. There's It's difficult for me to convey to listeners um, what a treasure trove of golden nuggets there are through the book. And that's why it's like, almost hurts my feelings that I'm just going to concentrate on one chapter because <laughs> they're, they're all related and, and they all um, play nicely together. And it's, it's great to have this as a resource to go back to again and again, when you forget what, what is wisdom exactly? What is patience exactly? What is love exactly? And you can kind of get reoriented once again. Um, and so I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about what's on page 106 that refers to our stony hearts. I really enjoyed that place in the book. Um, you you write here, um, so how do we recognize the sacred reality in, in someone who is hostile to us or vitriolic or violent or acting out an addiction or in some other way seems to be rejecting the gifts hidden in their heart? Um, and you could maybe talk about that a little bit. What is a stony heart and why should we not really lose faith in people who seem to have these stony hearts? You know, to answer your question, what I'd like to do is kind of cycle back to the first gift of the heart. And so this takes us back to the, to the actually the second chapter in the book, the chapter passage. And, um, and I quote from Psalm 84, uh, happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Mm -hmm. So the first gift of the heart is a highway, a pathway. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this idea of the pathway to Zion, the pathway to Jerusalem, this idea of pilgrimage, this mm -hmm. idea of being invited into a journey, being invited into a process. I know, I know it's the most tired metaphor in the book. The spirit, <laughs> spirituality is a journey. Um, yeah, I, you know, I never met a cliche I didn't like, you know, so I'll, I'll just, I'll just squeeze every last little bit of juice out of it. And so spirituality is a journey and, 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 and the highway of that journey is in, in our hearts. But what I, what I go on to reflect on is that the point behind a highway is that you're on the move, mm -hmm. you know, and I think again, you know, one of the things about the linear mind is that we tend to be more comfortable kind of taking pictures. We want things mm -hmm. static. We want, you know, we want to pin the bug on the board so we can know what the bug looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a shout out to C.S. Lewis and Eustace Scrub in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know, who liked mm -hmm. to pin, he liked dead bugs, you know, he wanted <laughs> to pin them on the board. And and the reality is that that's not life, that's death, you know. Mm -hmm. And so life is, is, is dynamic. Life is fluid. Life is in motion. Love is in motion, you know, relationship, friendship, kindness, all of that. And so to be a spiritual person is to be in motion. And so one of the things that I reflect on is that the point behind the highway is not just that the highway is there, not just that you're on the highway, but it, it's where you're going, you know. And so every one of us is at a different place on the highway. Some of us are wise, some of us are compassionate, some of us are just, some of us are, are balanced, are mature, are healthy, and others are struggling to get to those places. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is so important is to be compassionate to those who are in different, on different places in the highway than we are. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then you find somebody who's walking in the wrong direction, you know, and it's kind of like, wait a minute, you're heading away from Zion, you know, where are you going? You know? And so 
isn't that the reality? You know, back to the passage you mentioned, you know, the person who is hostile or vitriolic or violent or mm-hmm. acting out their addiction. Mm-hmm. We all know this is a reality. We all have been there mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form, you know, and if we haven't been there, people we love and care about have been there. Um, and so it's, um, you know, it's, it's some of the greatest suffering in the world. I can tell you, you know, I've been, I lead retreats and, and, and the most poignant interactions I have with people who are on retreat are, are usually mothers, but sometimes fathers, who their children are either in prison or in addiction or in some other way alienated from them. You know, there's just, there's just this incredible uh, distress, mm. you know, and the loving parent who cannot fix it for mm-hmm. the kid. And, and there's so much suffering there. And, and the suffering, of course, is born out of deep, deep love and profound compassion. You know, so, so we, all, we all experience this. And so what I want to do now is talk about one of my favorite 20th century uh, English mystics, a woman named Carol Hauslander. She was a contemporary of Evelyn Underhill and Teilhard de Chardin and, and the young Thomas Merton. She dies in the 1950s, like 1954 or so. Mm. So most of her writing takes place in like the 30s, 40s, into the early 50s. Mm. Um, but she was a mystic. She could see, see the face of Jesus in everybody. She could see the face of Jesus in the clouds. She had this profound sense of, of the presence of God in her life. And she wrote this wonderful book that was a meditation on the Virgin Mary, on the Blessed Mother. And the book is called The Read of God. And it's, and it's old school Catholic. So mm-hmm. I, I, I want to be clear, you know, in some ways, mm-hmm. some people reading it today might, might argue with it. And I would argue with it in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there's still, there's still some real richness and wisdom in that book. And, and, and this one thing that just, again, was a total mind blower for me the first time I read it. I don't have the book handy, so I can't quote word for word, but I'll give you the gist. She basically is talking about how we need to learn to see Christ in all people. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea, again, this biblical idea that we are all fashioned in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, and then this Christian idea that we all carry within us Christ, you know, and that we are the body of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So, you know, so, so we encounter Christ in one another. It's kind of, you know, basic mystical theology 101. And so she's saying, you know, it, it, blows my mind. This again, I'm paraphrasing here. She wouldn't have used that language. She said, it blows my mind that people travel all the way to Jerusalem to go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher, you know, the church where the tomb is, the tomb that is traditionally believed to be the tomb that Christ's body lay in repose in. She said, they go there and the tomb is empty. She said, but what about the person in your life? And again, she's using traditional language. So she said, the person in your life who has committed a mortal sin, mm-hmm. what we might say, the person who is lost in an addiction or the person who just has given themselves over to bitterness and hate mm-hmm. and anger and, and abuse and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. She says, in that person's heart, Christ is entombed. In that person's heart, Christ is lying dead, but awaiting resurrection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She said, we should be kneeling before those hearts. Mm -hmm. And again, when I read this, it was just like this, wow. Because if you really take that to heart, there is no human being alive that cannot in some way, shape or form bring Christ to you. Mm -hmm. And if they can bring Christ to you, 
you can bring Christ to them. And so, so like I say, think about the meanest old snake of a person you've ever met. <laughs> Christ is lying in the tomb in that mm. person's heart, but is awaiting resurrection. Mm. And that, you know, you want it. Yeah. Cause what is the normal response? Somebody is, 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 is abusive or mean or, or hate. Or, and again, I'm, and listen, I'm not talking about being a victim here. I mean, obviously if you're in a relationship with somebody and that person is abusive, you have mm-hmm. to make sure you're safe. So I want to be clear about that, mm-hmm. but, but speaking, you know, from a place of safety, you're, you're, you're interacting with a person and, um, you know, the temptation is to meet, to meet, you know, to meet hostility with hostility. And of course, Jesus tries to break that with the turn the other cheek teachings. Mm-hmm. And Carol Hauslander is really just taking that further. She's like, turn the other cheek, meet the hostility with love because you are being faithful to the Christ that is in the, the tomb of that person's mm-hmm. heart. Mm-hmm. The stony heart, of course, that image comes from Ezekiel. You know, and again, this idea that God takes the stony heart out and replaces it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. That brings to mind, and I've got to make a shout out here to my my dear friend, Loretta Coleman Brown, Mm -hmm. who has written a beautiful book about her experience as a heart transplant recipient. Mm -hmm. We live in a miraculous age of heart Mm -hmm. transplants. Here, Ezekiel is writing, what, 2,500 years ago, Mm -hmm. and kind of prophetically speaking of a spiritual heart transplant, Mm -hmm. taking the stony heart out, putting in the heart of flesh. And so we can can embrace that as one of the eight gifts. When our hearts are heavy and they die, obviously a physical heart dies and you move on to the next chapter of your life. But speaking metaphorically, speaking spiritually, many of us taste taste deaths. We taste the death of a relationship, the death of a dream, the death mm-hmm. of a career. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a death of health. I mean, so many different things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this idea that 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 death opens up to resurrection mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, there is a finality to physical death, but as a person of faith, I believe even that opens up to a spiritual resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just continually, this is the process that we're invited into. And so again, if, if I can trust that my stony heart will be transplanted into a heart of new life from the God who loves me, then I ought to offer other people the same, the same faith and this recognition that I can meet another person's acting out. Again, I have to protect myself. I'm, I'm going to be clear about that. But, but to the extent that I'm safe, I can meet their hostility and their acting out with the love of God if I am fully rooted in that divine love. So I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in, the, in that paragraph. I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, that is very helpful. At the end of the chapter, like we talked about, there are heart practices, but this particular chapter has the heart practice of hospitality. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. And you mentioned here, which is so true, that hospitality can get messy. It can get complicated. It's not some transactional thing. It's uh, and and it happens in different ways for different people. Uh, maybe you could just speak to the use of hospitality as a way to practice this heart gift or or bring it out in our lives. Well, um, you know, this, I think, really extends from an insight that I had a while back. 
and that is that um, I think I think it's I read the book. Um, it's by Bill Countryman, William Countryman. He used to teach at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. I, I imagine he's retired now, but um, he was a New Testament scholar. And um, but this book called Dirt, Greed, and Sex, and it's it's actually a book about sexual ethics. Mm. Um, and and it's it's really a brilliant book because what he does is he looks at sexual ethics in Scripture, and then he applies them to the controversial issues of our time. So he, he looks at, he looks at uh, homosexuality, gender identity, um, you know, uh, divorce and remarriage. I mean, issues that have become lightning rods, especially in more conservative churches, but even in the liberal churches, there's, there's sometimes have been struggles with these issues. And he has a lot of very, very interesting things to say mm-hmm. about how the, the, the Bible can still say interesting things to us about sexuality and, and ethics even though we may not live in the nearly the same world. And one of the points that he makes is that most of the, the, the ethical statements about sexuality in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, tend to be embedded in purity codes, purity codes or property codes. And that's, that's the dirt and the greed thing. Mm-hmm. Dirt, obviously, cleanliness and dirtiness has to do with purity. And greed, financial p- property, has to do with with ownership and possession. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, most of the most of what we see about about sexuality in the Bible involve purity issues or ownership issues. Mm-hmm. What I realized reading that book, and again generalizing, not just talking about sexual ethics, but just generalizing, is that we have this tendency in our culture, in our our Christian culture, to equate holiness with purity. Mm. And, and, and I'm not opposed to cleanliness. I'm not opposed to the idea that, you know, that, that sometimes you got to clean up. Okay. But it occurs to me that really, when you look at the New Testament, you look at, at, at Jesus, Jesus's ministry, you look at like the story of Cornelius, you look at, at, um, a lot of the ministry of Paul, then moving into the desert mothers and fathers, moving into St. Benedict and the monastic tradition. What you really see is that there is this entire kind of conversation about what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ that is not calibrated towards purity, but is calibrated towards hospitality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it seems to me that um, with, you know, and again, I'm not trying to chuck purity out of the window. I, th- I think, and I think there's, there's a place for, for fidelity and relationships and there's a place for setting good boundaries, you know, and all of the, all of that kind of falls under purity. But, but I think we need to be foregrounding hospitality. We mm-hmm. need to be foregrounding. I was the stranger and you welcomed me, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that I think is closer to the heart of Jesus's message. And so, um, so that's really kind of why I needed, I needed to make hospitality one of the core practices here. You know, I say that at the beginning, I say that really these, these heart practices are what I see as core spiritual practices. Mm. So they're not just about the gifts of the heart, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in a way, I think those eight practices could almost be published in a little pamphlet all by themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, so I paired them with the gifts where they seem to make the most intuitive sense. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not necessarily that when I think about wisdom, automatically I'm talking about hospitality, mm-hmm. but I do think wisdom and hospitality do go together. Mm-hmm. That, that it does take a certain, again, back to patience, a certain patience, a certain forbearance, a certain largeness of heart, generosity of heart mm-hmm. to, um, to, to move into those spaces of hospitality. And, and I'm defining hospitality in a very broad sense. It's not just welcoming strangers into your home, although obviously that's a component. Mm-hmm. But again, back to the theme of the book, welcoming, welcoming the other into our hearts. Mm-hmm. So we can offer hospitality just when we're listening to a friend who's upset, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're having to interrupt something important to attend to this person who's in distress. That's an act of hospitality. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy. We don't always do it well, but I think it's something we're called to, to try to, you know, to try to um, hone our game at, you know, really, Mm -hmm. really to become people of hospitality as part of our commitment to love. Mm. Uh, There was a point that I had been thinking about deeply a little while ago that had to do with hospitality that in what I was seeing in, in our church uh, is that hospitality was called, uh, there was a hospitality committee. And this was kind of like, let's make the rooms that we are in welcoming. Let's make sure we welcome people coming and we serve them. And it came to me that through, I'm sure, things that I've read, not totally on my own, but that hospitality has to be mutual. You have to let that person give to you. Not You're not just serving, serving. You're allowing that person to make their own mark on you. And I think that's, you know, sometimes it just doesn't get stated in those ways. We think of hospitality as kind of, you know, going that extra mile for somebody else and taking them in or something. Mm -hmm. But it really doesn't change us or affect us or give us wisdom or any of the other gifts if it just stays this one-sided thing. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, one of the things about any kind of relational, you know, encounter is that it takes two to tango, you know? Right. And so, so you know, part of learning to be a person of hospitality is learning to be a person who can receive hospitality, mm-hmm. a person who can, who can meet the other person in, in their, their hospitality frontier, as mm-hmm. it were, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, you know, learning to be a good guest, for example, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm again I'm 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 associated with with the the Trappist monastery you know and one of the things is that the monastery has a guest house but there are limitations the 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 guests are not invited into the monk's living space for example the cloister you know mm-hmm. and so you know so part of part of being being in the hospitality relationship is is acknowledging that there are there are limits you know hospitality is not an anything goes proposition. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine um, from years ago, I haven't seen her in ages, but a woman named Caroline Westerhoff wrote a book once called Good Fences. Mm-hmm. And it was a book about boundaries and hospitality. A brilliant, you know, um, topic that I don't think we pay enough attention to. And so, you know, it is an important issue. Mm. Well, we're probably at a good point to draw to a close, but I just wanted to make sure you get to say anything that you feel like might have been left out or any nugget you'd like to leave my listeners with. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So mm. thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I hope people will enjoy the book. I, 
you know, encourage people to check it out. That's really, I guess, you know, and I'm just grateful to be here. Thank you, Lisa. I've always, every time we've connected, I've enjoyed our conversations. Oh, me too. You are really a spiritual mentor and inspiration for me and so many others. And I hope people get the gift that is your book that people can find out, um, all the things you you have for them here that lie waiting like unopened gifts. It's really a pleasure to to talk with you again, as always. So you churn out books so prolifically. I, every time I turn around, it's like, I think, oh my goodness. It makes me curious to ask you, are you what are you working on right now? Well, um... this is the 200th guest episode of Spark My Muse, but there's also 194 Soul School episodes almost 400 episodes over the past six years. Thank you so much for listening and being with me on this journey. I have saved Carl's response for bonus material that you can get at patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. For just $10 a month, you can support the program and get a t-shirt. The entry point is not $10 a month. It's only $1. It's something everybody can afford. So head over to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse where you can hear Carl's response. You can also read hundreds of posts of previous episodes, find resources, behind the scenes information and photos, and plenty of other goodies. Even when you support at a dollar a month, it really makes a big difference to keep this program going. And now back to the interview. Would you like to remind people where they can find you online? Absolutely. Um, so my website, I'm going to spell it because it's an Irish word, but it's Anamkara, and that's A-N as in Nancy, A-M as in Mary, C-H-A-R as in Rhode Island, A, Anamkara.com. And um, yeah, I'm on, you know, all the, all the social media, you know, places, which it's usually just my name. So, um, so yeah, you know, come and, come and check me out. <laughs>